Oh, hey, CNFers. This episode is affiliate sponsored uh, by Liquid IV again. I gotta say, it's a delicious way to rehydrate and fuel from those endurance activities. Or if you just want to zhuzh up your water, it's got a little salty tinge to it, which I kind of appreciate. It's some tasty stuff. I like the lemon lime, but I was really surprised by the white peach. It's non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy, so you know your burly vegan digs it. Not the, like, free from soy or gluten part, but the dairy part, yes. Also, there's a sugar-free version, and uh, I've liked that, too. It's a pretty low-cal way to get some electrolytes. So anyway, 20% off, wow, if you go to liquidiv.com and use the promo code CNF at checkout, that's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. Kind of like the sound of that. Oh, and also, this episode is also brought to you by the word trepidation. Tremulous, fear, alarm, or agitation. Perturbation. When the 3 a.m. voice comes to tell you what a lousy person you are, it fills you with trepidation. You know, imagine like handing someone an ice cream cone, blindfolding someone, and then handing them an ice cream cone, and then not telling them what it is. Like, those first, that first bite of the ice cream cone is going to be a little weird for them. But if you say to hand it to them and say, I'm handing you an ice cream cone, then they're going to be excited. They're going to wonder what flavor ice cream cone is going to be. Oh, yes. Hello, CNFers. It's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Good for me. It's that Atavistian time of the month, okay? So some spoilers, obviously. All right, we've got Robert Kolker on the show. And not only could he pose as David Remnick's stunt double, or vice versa, let's be real, but he's the wildly brilliant journalist and writer behind the, the book Hidden Valley Road. Oprah picked it, no bigs. And Obama picked it for his year-end list in 2020. Okay, now we're just showing off. He's also the author of Lost Girls, which has been turned into a film on Netflix. I mean, come on. Uh, to read his latest piece, Dead Reckoning, uh, go to magazine.adivis.com to subscribe. No, I don't get any kickbacksies. My uh, resident CFO is like, maybe, do, do you get any kickbacks? I'm like, no. My recommendations are pure. This podcast is pure. Oh, but what about that liquid IV? You know what? Stop it. I'm going to stop you right there. Atavis has been doing some incredible narrative journalism, man. I mean, Jana Meisenholder, Jana, I'm sorry, Jana Meisenholder and Cassidy Randall, they were honored in the 2023 volume of Year's Best Sports Writing for their Atavis pieces in the past year. That's crazy. You can hear them talk about those stories in the backlog. It has long been my goal to get into Best American Sports Writing and then Year's Best Sports Writing. They got me beat. That just gives you an idea of how badass these atavistians are, lest you forget. If you head over to brendanomero.com, hey, hey, you can read show notes and sign up for my Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, a curated list, how basic, uh, an essay, some books, stuff to make you happy. As you know, it goes up to 11. Like, Well, like literally, it goes... 11 items long. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you still can't beat it. And uh, I, I started something cool for the Patreon crew. 
any tier. All right. I started a thread. Uh, let's see, about two weeks ago at this point, uh, about just what you're working on. And the latest one, I did a little, just a video prompting it about uh, book writing being messy. You know, and here I am. I'm stealing a term from a recent podcast I heard from Seth Godin. Uh, so if the podcast audience is about collecting dots, the Patreon crew is about connecting dots. And I'm really liking the discussions and support that's taking place over there. Like, I don't jump in all the time. I, I, I sort of just hover as a referee. Uh, but I, there's 27 patrons right now. Uh, about a third are chiming in. And I hope more decide to as well. Or they can just uh, be a f wallflower in the conversation. But I, I'd encourage you to jump in. You know, you're a part of this community that's going to help support you, your work. And you can help support others as well. And if you'd like to, it's open to all tiers, patreon.com slash cnfpod. You're supporting the podcast, but you're also connecting dots. I think some people are making some friendships over there. And that's what, that's what it's about. I like being able to connect people. I've connected uh, listeners and guests on the show and guests and guests on the show. And now the Patreon crew is starting to maybe uh, find out that they have more in common than they thought. But if you don't have a few bucks... Free ways to support the show. You can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a kind review. Got a new one. Been a while, but got one. Five stars. Kimba83. My college girlfriend, her name was Kim, and uh, her nickname was Kimba. And I doubt this is her. Um, uh, I wonder what she's up to these days. Always enjoy Brendan's insights. Brendan brings some truly talented writers on this podcast and asks them insightful questions. I always learn something that I can use in my own writing. He also gives great advice from his own experiences. It's definitely worth listening to the back catalog if you are a new listener. Awesome. Thanks, Kimba83. But before now we get too excited about Bob Colker, who's here, uh, there's still the matter of speaking with the lead editor of this piece, the lead editor of this ship, as it were, Jonah Ogles. Dead Reckoning's the name of the story. Yet another thrilling nautical disaster. There's a certain amount of kinetics to these nautical things, right? I mean, the ocean is always in motion. Great juice from Jonah about how Bob had the material and the difference between a pitch that has the goods versus what he calls the Wikipedia pitch. The latter is not what you want. And a final matter of housekeeping. Shout out to Athletic Brewing. Best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. It's not a paid plug. I'm a brand ambassador, and I love celebrating this amazing product. If you go to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, if you don't know how to spell my name, B-R-E-N-D-A-N-O, number 20, get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they're not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points for, like, swag and beer. I pay for shipping, stuff like that. Give it a shot. I love it. I think you would, too. Parting shot this week kind of riffs on the rising influence of AI and how this can push us to be the distinctive writers we need to be. So, before we get to that, now, batting leadoff, it is Jonah Ogles. Now, what are things that you find yourself you know, most sensitive to? Uh, when you're reading hmm yeah well I mean I, 
I think I pay a lot of attention to to pace. That's that's sort of that's sort of front of mind for for me as I'm working through a piece. You know, but I'd I'd so that that's sort of like the editor part of my brain um, is paying attention to things like that. You know, where pacing, sourcing, attribution, um, you know, sort of the the logic of of an argument or a situation that we're explaining. You know, so so those things are kind of happening in the editor side of my brain, but. Sometimes I'm not so great at like engaging the reader side of my brain, especially if I'm feeling rushed or if I have a lot of, you know, I'm really trying to just get through an edit. I think that reader brain is probably the better brain to to operate with, certainly on occasion. You know, you gotta you gotta bring that in and make sure that it's just like a fun reading experience. And, and that side is sort of like grabbing onto different things, primarily like seeing you know, scene and color and dialogue and the places where I feel sort of engaged and in the moment in the story and and the places where I'm not engaged or or sort of losing interest or find myself distracted by questions or or sort of a lack of focus. Can you ever turn the editor brain off you know, when you're reading or how hard is it for you to do that? Yeah, it does. It doesn't really turn off. You know, you can, yeah. I, I try, I'm, I'm working on a, a different piece right now and like I'm doing the cutting read. So I'm, I'm just sort of like viciously going through and, and chopping words. And I know that after that, I will then need to do sort of a, dismiss that editor's brain a little bit and, and, try to be a reader and just make sure the piece is kind of smooth but it, it it doesn't turn off even even as i'm sitting here in bed at night reading a novel it doesn't turn off yeah you know it, it's just sort of always it's always there and i find myself you know it can it can sort of ruin the experience a little bit sometimes where where i'm reading a book and and it's an enjoyable book but i find myself thinking you know, I'll read four or five pages and I'll think, I just would have cut all of this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I just, I just would have gotten rid of it. And, and you got to say like, shut up, Jonah, and just like, enjoy this thing that this writer poured their soul into. And, and don't let yourself get in the way of like having an enjoyable reading experience. Yeah, well, that's when I made the decision to become a writer way back when 20 years ago, it I was a reader up until that point and then you start reading as a writer or reading as an editor and suddenly you start to see the matrix Mm -hmm. and it does kind of ruin reading in a way like in a way it does because you don't because you are reading it with oh that's a that's an interesting choice like uh would i have made that choice or in your case you're like i would have cut all this and instead you never thought like that before you were an editor or a writer. You just right. kind of sunk into it. And so it it does kind of pollute it in a way. <laughs> it does. It does. And it, it makes, it, at the same time, it makes certain books or articles uh, that much more enjoyable. Because when you find one where the storytelling sort of overwhelms that part of your brain early. I'm just speaking from my experience, but there are books that sometimes like 
I find that I'm just reading for enjoyment. And and maybe that's one reason, like I, I love coming back to like John le Carre novels or Elmore Leonard novels, because I just, I, I'm just like overwhelmed by the fun that I'm having and, and reading them. But, it, but, you know, even with like nonfiction books or certain magazine stories that I read, some, sometimes it's just so well done, whether, whether it's a function of editing or writing or, you know, some great spirit moving through the person who was working on it. Like, it's just kind of perfect. And I don't mean that, that there's no flaw in the story or that there isn't something I would do differently, but it, it's just so itself, like it's so its own thing doing sort of operating under its own rules and, and marching forward relentlessly that, just swept up in it and that only happens a couple times a year a few times a year for me but man it's such a rewarding experience when it happens (laughs) now with bob's piece and bob is a as a writer and reporter like he is one of the more uh accomplished journalists and reporters that has like come through the last few years of the ad of his pipeline it no knock on anyone else but there's a lot that are more early career and bob is extremely accomplished a lot of a lot of feathers in his cap and um you know for for you editing someone of of bob's skill and stature uh how, how do you approach editing and consulting with him versus someone who might be a little at the let's say early career part of the spectrum yeah yeah that's a great question because it's there is something different about it and like I think for me, there's an insecurity that rises up. You know, mm-hmm. like because, do I suggest any changes to him? Yeah. I was like, yeah, he would know. He's been doing this forever. It's such it, great stuff. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Like he's <laughs> it's uh, he's very successful, obviously, and and very good at what he does. And so you start to question yourself, and you think like, oh God, maybe I shouldn't suggest this, or you second guess uh, your own thoughts. And you got to try to not do that as much as possible. And and one great thing about Bob is he never talked down to me or, or, you know, like was dismissive in any way. He was so welcoming of suggestions and cuts and pushed back where he needed to, but was gracious about other things that I'm sure you know, probably irked him, but he was just great to deal with. And that's not always the case. You know, there, there are other big name writers, um, who I won't mention, but that I've worked with in my career who are really just sort of condescending as you're editing them. And, and I think that hurts the process and and the resulting story because it, it has to be a conversation, you know, like if I, if I'm having a question, I'm, I'm not like the most gifted reader or editor in the world by any means, but, but I'm, I have, I read a lot, I edit a lot. And so, you know, if, if I have a thought, there's a good chance that other readers are going to have the same thought. And I, I think the, the piece will be best if you can sort of dismiss that insecurity and and just have an open and frank conversation about what is working and what isn't working in the piece. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it's it's similar to say you're like a younger coach and you're come like come in to uh inherit a very 
accomplished, you know, quarterback or mm-hmm. pitcher or shortstop, and it's like you're like, should I tell them that their mechanics are a little off or, yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, they got to this point, but uh, I don't know, I'm noticing something wrong, and uh, should I bring that up? It's a, it's, it's kind of very similar like that. Yeah, right, right. Well, yeah, I'm watching this, uh, the winning time. HBO show about the Lakers and um, you know, they've got the, the coach who sort of like takes over mid season and they win a championship. And then this next season is, you know, it all sort of goes to his head, you know, and he, he starts to, you know, sort of like overmanage and overthink and, and let the, let the ego creep in. And, and I think whether you're an editor or a writer, you sort of got to, resist that because every piece is its own thing you know i'm sure in this case bob wrote like just a really great draft that didn't really require much from us but I, i'm sure he's written bad ones like uh, and i'm sure he will in the future maybe i'm wrong maybe people reach a point where they just turn out endless good copy but <laughs> I, I don't think so you know i think you're like you're trying to start from scratch every time yeah and what's what's great about this particular piece too it's it's like yet another piece set on the water another kind yeah. of a, <laughs> another shipwreck <laughs> another shipwreck uh, but they have a there there's something about them they're so kinetic and really dramatic and um you know what was it about this one that kind of just that felt like it set it apart from other ones that you've uh, been able to edit well bob i mean bob being who he is plays a a played a factor into it you know when he reached out we were like oh yeah we would love to we would love to work with this guy but he he really had he had a great story you know it's it's this great historical piece which you know sometimes when you're just reporting a story based off of like newspapers and people's journals and things like that it can feel a little flat because you're not able to build out sort of that sensory experience but bob clearly had the goods sort of from the beginning with this and that's that's always my first question with a historical piece is can we make readers feel like they're there for for the entire piece or or certainly for good chunks of it and and bob bob had that and and also like this is a huge like seven destroyers wrecked you know on off the coast of california that's that's huge. You know, if, yeah. it, if it happened today, it would just be like wall to wall coverage for days. Um, and, in but you know, this happens with the passage of time. It's been kind of forgotten or overlooked. And so, uh, it was, it felt like we were sort of adding something to the historical record by, by bringing it up and, and publishing a story about it. And given that Bob has such a, a, just a wealth of experience and a ton of skill and is so, so good at what he does. And some people who listen to this show, and I, I imagine, um, uh, especially the Atavist interviews in particular, uh, to get, to glean some insight into how to do this work and to do this work better. Uh, what is it about Bob and his approach through your interactions with him that you feel, um, people can learn from? Yeah, well, he was, like I said earlier, he was very, very open to a, a collaborative editing process, which which helps a lot and, and is not uh, the approach that every writer takes. Um, so I think, 
I think that I hope that it helped the story along and, and helped it become a better piece. I mean, he, he also just, he had the material to work with, you know, and, and I, we get a lot of pitches from people who find a historical curiosity or, or they find like we, we describe it as like Wikipedia pitches, you know, where they like, they have the basic facts of what happened and they're like, isn't this crazy? And yes, the answer is often, yes, it's crazy. You know, if Bob had come to us just with, Hey, this largest peacetime disaster in us naval history, there's shipwrecks, there's, uh, you know, look at the lives lost, look at all this stuff. Like Yes, that on its face has sort of the bones of a good story. But he also had the materials to to flesh it out and put muscle on the piece. And and a lot of times when writers have reached out to me with a Wikipedia pitch, I ask for more details, I ask for their sourcing, I say, okay, this part's a little murky, you know, how would we flesh this out? And they come back and the answer is they haven't, they don't really have the materials yet. You know, they might know that, well, some of them might be in this library or, you know, maybe they can, uh, they hope to interview these people, but Bob sort of had it all lined up, you know, and that, and that's, that's a real difference maker. It makes editors feel confident that the story is going to take shape and not just not be sort of a, you know, trying to backfill an okay story and make it just a little bit more okay, you know? Yeah, I think I'm so guilty of this, but people are often, uh, they don't put enough legwork in ahead of time. Uh, Mainly, I I can understand because like time is money and that's Mm -hmm. a, it's a lot of effort to, uh, to go through at first when, odds are the piece is still going to get rejected. And uh-huh. it's like, you know, you're trying to save yourself some of that rejection pain by maybe not, maybe by doing the Wikipedia thing, you think you're saving yourself some time. But I think it's a, that's a shortcut to if you do some of that extra legwork, uh, if nothing else, it's going to really cement a really good pitch for the, for maybe the next publication and you're that much farther along in the reporting. But it's, it's kind of a hard mental jujitsu to do to put in that extra effort, uh, up front. It is. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm so sympathetic to writers who, you know, who don't want to waste a bunch of time putting, putting in all that legwork before they've pitched. But I think one thing that happens or, or one thing I've noticed with more established writers is they, they have the most important stuff. You know, so that, so it's not as if they're reporting ninety percent of the story and then showing up with with this fully formed pitch, although that happens on occasion and it's great when it does. But but the experienced writers are better at finding the key materials or the key sources first. And, yeah, the the know, linchpin stuff. Exactly, exactly. When they when writers show up and they say. I've already talked to these two most important people and I have the best documents and I know there's other stuff that I can get. We feel good about that. It's when they come and they say, Hey, I have this other stuff that suggests to me that there's, you know, really crucial stuff that I can get. I just haven't gotten it yet. That's when we say like, okay, but get it 
first, you know, because yeah. other, otherwise you go out and like the materials have been lost or the court destroyed the records because they were so old or a source is, you know, old and, and no longer able to do interviews or doesn't live in the country or something, you know, like and it, things fall apart in a thousand different ways. So editors just want to see that like the, the linchpin is there. Oh, fantastic. That's great. This is such great insights into, uh, you know, your approach. And of course, Bob's uh, is a little behind the curtain of, of Bob's incredible piece and what he was able to tease out and, and uh, tell this uh, incredible story of this naval peacetime naval disaster uh, off the coast of California. So, uh, Jonah, as always, a uh, great pleasure uh, talking to you. And we're going to kick this over to Bob now. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. A little more about Bob, okay? He's written for the New York Times Magazine, New York Magazine, Wired, Oprah Magazine, among many others. His work is pretty wide-ranging, but he's most drawn to gripping, humane narratives. And from topics ranging from, uh, this is Spinal Tap, as you know, my newsletter goes up to 11, and the gene editing process, CRISPR, and on and on. It's a very wide range. You'd want to go to Robert coker.com to check out a, a, a the archive of his work and to learn more about him. So it's with great pleasure that we get to hear his brilliant insights into creating this historical yarn that he's written for the Atavist about the greatest peacetime nautical disaster in U.S. naval history. How he also interviews people for story and information and the robust timeline he makes to keep things organized in his early drafts. So let's get right to it. Here is Bob Coker. In, in, in books, there are certain universal truths that help you navigate, I guess, maybe the uh, the choppy waters that are the individualized personality of each story. So maybe for you, like, what, what are some of those universal things that you can anchor yourself to that help you navigate stories? And I, I'm really leaning into na- uh, navigation puns. That is nautical puns but i i i i mean it in terms of <laughs> what do you hinge uh what do you grab onto for universalities the nautical puns are inescapable at a certain point <laughs> once you start it's hard to stop uh, and in fact with the you know with the fact checking and uh, editorial staff at the atavist it, it's been quite non-stop um back and forth <laughs> while getting the story ship shaped i guess <laughs> Um, I, I'm a, my approach is always narrative, but but it's always about something else as well. Very rarely, I suppose earlier in my career, I would do whatever people threw at me, obviously, but very rarely would I do a story that just would be, here's an amazing yarn, you're never going to believe it. it. It always is about something else. There's a separate issue bubbling beneath the surface. And it, it really comes out in the reporting, and it's anybody's guess when... I get started how much of the story will be about that underlying issue and how much will be about the yarn the tangled tale itself the narrative itself sometimes it's 80 20 sometimes it's 20 80 it really kind of is it's a little like i i come out with a a very rough draft and i look at it and the editors look at it and we decide what's working and what isn't and if it turns out that the actual twists and turns of the story are enough to really sustain it then it's 80 20 and the other 20 percent is are the issues but but with this new story for the atavist it's been 
exciting because from the very start, it was clear that this was going to be a, a purely narrative story. And it would be up to me to try to find any sort of meaning or, um, you know, glean any sort of like deeper understanding of human nature or anything from what had happened. Uh, this was never going to be a, a survey story about leadership with the Honda Point disaster as a case study. It was always going to be about the Honda Point disaster. And so that that was uh, a little intimidating and very exciting to get started on. Yeah, and given that it, it took place you know, so long ago and you're living in the archives to create uh, your scenes and your in the in your narrative uh you know and you know you've you know written you know recently a new york times magazine piece about the you know the vanishing family you know that's very fa- you know face to face very in your face in terms of the the how, how gut-wrenching it is and that that you can build off of that and then there's this which is more archival based so uh you know for you building the building those scenes what uh what becomes the the challenge for you to uh to the, to build those blocks i've done archival stuff before but certainly not a lot and and so it was definitely exciting to be doing something new new to me particularly since a lot of the face-to-face work I do with, with families in crisis and people going through really extreme traumatic situations, that, that really, it's healthier for me and probably for anybody <laughs> to, to mix it up and to have some variety and try and do other things. And so to, to be purely in the archives and to understand that I'm never going to have a personal interview with somebody kind of sets up a whole other uh, game to play. And, and there's lots of pressure that I would feel because it was new. I felt very intimidated. I went, went to the National Archives and looked at the personal papers of Edward Watson, the captain, the squadron commander at the center of this disaster. And I felt like, well, it's put up or shut up time. Like either this is going to be a treasure trove with all sorts of amazing nuggets of information that are going to make this entire situation come alive, or it's going to be a bunch of postcards and I'll be you know, up the creek, I'd be in real trouble. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, it always ends up being somewhere in the middle. I I find with archival work, personally, that it's a lot of, there are many days of kind of despair and nervousness and anxiety, where you're thinking, I don't have enough, I don't have enough, I don't have this, I don't have that. And you really start to fixate on the things you don't have and the things you don't know. And then as the days go by at once you're maybe once you're out of the archives and are, you know, just sort of getting to work, I, if something shifts and you start to appreciate the things you do have, you know, I think, well, actually, I, you know, we have the personal letters of a civilian who was actually on the boat. That's exciting. What would it be like to be a civilian on the boat that's at the head of a squadron of ships that goes down for next to no reason? What, what, how does that, what is that like? And so you, you start to really appreciate what you have and really run with it. And, and I always find that, readers understand that particularly with historical things they understand well this is what this is what is available so let's see how far it can take us you know when you're living in the past like that and there's no one living to uh, talk about it can be hard to you know really and you and you obviously you can't be there so you can't take in a lot of those sensory details so sometimes it can feel uh, on the whole flat but as you as you uncovered in this piece, there are certain things like the metal scraping along the hall, like 
Oh, sorry, everyone. I, I need to jump in and interject. Uh, it's not the metal scraping along the hall, you idiot. It was this moment of the rock scraping across the metal of the hall. And it was just such a really visceral description that Bob was able to convey out of out of the archival record. I, you know, you could really feel and hear that. I I arrive at those little physical details very late in the game. I don't feel like I'm... Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly how David Grand works, but I imagine that he's very interested in that, that those physical details that it, from a very early moment. Whereas my my approach, because I guess I do so much interviewing in my career, is is primarily psychological, and so I only only later, as I'm writing it, do I think, wow, I really, I to understand what's happening here, I really need to recreate this in a physical way as well. It's just a difference between what comes naturally to me first but then i'm excited once i do arrive at it because i i feel like um i i I feel like it each one is invested in with a lot of meaning like i find as long as i use these details sparingly and they really are worth it then they are really quite meaningful as opposed to just doing a fire hose of physical material that makes it feel like it's a creative writing exercise where i'm just sort of imagining what it's like to be on that boat um so i I feel like less is more in that regard Mm. And, uh, you know, when you're in the archives and you come across a, a letter and in, in some of the things that, that I'm currently doing, I've come across, you know, very various letters and it uh, there, there's just a pulse that I feel I'm like, oh, this is a this is great. This came from the typewriter of one of the central figures or this came right out of the pen in the hand of one of the central figures. And it just feels different it feels there's a pulse there that i just i'm a i'm addicted to when i can find it and for you maybe can you describe you know what it's like when you find something that is just so so precious you're like oh i can't wait to deploy this it's it's really exciting because um the the rhythms of speech are in there too when they are personal letters these aren't written for posterity they're written it's a brother's letter to a sister or a son's letter to a father or a father to a son and so lots of dashes and ellipses and lots of grammatical snafus. They're, they're trying to get across you know, thoughts and feelings in a, in a fast but authentic way. And they're very, very different from public statements that people are making at the exact time. So you, with, with Edward Watson, the man at the center of this disaster, he is saying things to the media one day, and then he's writing his father or his sister and saying different things or saying them in a different tone. It's all about how they want to present themselves to the people they love, whether they're being vulnerable or whether they're trying to have a stiff upper lip. There's personality there, and you can learn about them. And uh, you know, you brought it up a moment ago about you know doing uh, some some stories that are very emotionally taxing, and then having something of this nature where it's like, okay, I don't, I'm not going to have to, you know. Uh, uh, interview interview someone with you know probing very personal uh oftentimes just uh picking at those scar questions and uh, picking at the scab questions so uh, for you do you try to work in these kind of palate cleanser pieces uh, things that might be a little less emotionally taxing just over the course of you know the the arc of uh, of your year of the things you're reporting on I've written two books. The first book is Lost Girls which is about the Gilgo Beach murder investigation which just had a big break this year been a busy time revisiting that case but the book i wrote was really about the lives of the women it was about it was about uh their families it was about their struggles and i was interviewing families who 
were in the middle of the worst moments of their lives. And there was a media spotlight on them because of a murder investigation and nobody understood their lost loved ones and they were never coming back. And it didn't seem like the murderer would ever be found. It, 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 they, it was like talking to somebody who was going through the worst possible moment of their life and then talking to four more people just like them with four different other victims in the case. And it, it was a lot. And at the end of it, once I, uh, once the, the second draft was done, I had some downtime and I remember turning to my wife and saying, could we watch love actually tonight? Like, you know, and, and she gave me like a little, like a look, like you, you would never want to watch love actually. And I was like, I just want to, I just need to watch some people fall in love at the moment. I can't do anything else. So it does, it does take a little bit of a toll. Certainly, um, it pales in comparison with any of the experiences of the people I'm writing about, but it, it's a, it, you know, it's not nothing. And it, and you, you need to have, you know, some balance for my next book. I wrote about a family afflicted by schizophrenia and I was determined not to white knuckle it. I was determined to have work-life balance. We, yeah, as a family, we got a dog. I became a dog owner and I loved that. And, and I, you know, I never cooked, but I learned to cook and you know, started making a few meals every week for the family. So I, so I had things to definitely break up the day and not just be sitting in a pressure cooker. So for the emotional demanding stuff, it was important for me to learn some lessons about how to work. But I wouldn't necessarily call this the story of Honda Point a, a non-emotional story. I think, right, right, yeah. I think I gravitate toward toward these difficult moments that sort of bring out elements of human nature. And certainly this military disaster did that for not just for Edward Watson, but for other people, lots of finger pointing, lots of Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, the media gets involved and turns people into heroes and then turns those heroes back into villains. It, these are all, you know, it's all very rich emotional material to me. And I wanted to try to, make it feel like it was happening today and not not like it was some sort of history event from a high school textbook. Right. So what did this when you were, you know, reporting out the story and writing it, what did you find in it that felt relevant to today and felt um reflective of what's, you know, maybe our current moment? It's a very good question. I first learned about this disaster from a friend of mine who played uh, poker with friends on Zoom. We were having lunch and he said, I play poker with my friends over Zoom. It's like a year and a half ago. And two of the guys who were in my poker group started talking about the worst peacetime disaster to happen to the US Navy ever in history, that they lost more ships in 10 minutes in all of World, than in all of World War One, and that it led to the biggest court martial in Navy history and that nobody talks about it. And I was curious. And he said, maybe you want to look into it. And I went on, of course, you know, Wikipedia and did some Googling and whatnot. And, and what I learned was very interesting. But where, what really got me going with it was this moment as the court of inquiry is beginning, uh, as the Navy is starting an official inquiry into the disaster, where before it really gets rolling, the man at the center of it all, the squadron commander, stands up and he says to the media and to the court, and to everyone in the world, I did it. Blame me. It's my fault. And and this is the answer to the question you asked. This is the moment where that I locked in on emotionally that felt in a way so alive to today, but also so different from today. I thought this would never happen today. I thought 
um, if this were today, whoever would be at the center of, a, of something like this would have hired a crisis PR firm <laughs> or, or lawyered up immediately or, you know, issued very, very canned, very, very prepared statements about, you know, that would try to muddy the waters a little bit and say, well, that it's everybody's fault. There were, there were a lot of problems that night. Who's to say who's to blame? And so I thought, what was different between then and now? And what was the same between then and now? And what's going through the mind of someone like that who decides to take the blame? Is it just a story of honor? Is it just a story of doing the right thing? Or is it more complicated than that? I thought that this could be an amazing disaster story and an amazing courtroom drama. And then that was the moment where I thought this could be an amazing psychological story about what it means to do the right thing and what happens once you do. I wanted to learn everything I could about the man, about Edward Watson, and about why he might have done it this way, and about what happened to him after he did. And I was um, not disappointed. I, I, I was constantly surprised the more I learned, uh, both the reasons why he did it, the very complicated moral calculus he made by taking the blame, how, uh, yes, that was the honorable thing to do, but it also was strangely an act of self-preservation suddenly it became a very morally complex story. It made me think of, this is a real reach, <laughs> but it made me think of things like, stories like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, where there's a legend of somebody being so amazing and then the reality is far more grim and far more, um, you know, far less honorable. And I didn't think that Edward Watson was a villain necessarily disguised as a hero. I just felt like he was a far more complicated figure than the news stories of the time depicted him as. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of him. And so I learned about his family. And sure enough, his father has this amazing story. And this is where I um, start to shake my head and think, well, there I go again, writing about, you know, family relationships and family <laughs> dynamics and, and fathers and sons. You know, the, it doesn't matter that, that the, all these ships went down and it doesn't matter that there was a crazy legal disaster after the, the Navy disaster. I'm going to be talking about the father and the son. And so I, I did a deep dive into their relationship as well. Yeah. And what struck me about that relationship was how, I don't know, like the, you know, the father didn't, you know, condemn the kid or in the, or unless he kind of like kind of stood by him, stood by his decision and everything was actually kind of like proud of him in the end for kind of just manning up, I guess. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, you could see another way or it's just like, uh, you know, you've sullied my name and now get, you know, get, get on with your life and never speak of me again. It's uh, it, it did <laughs> seem like, you know, on, you know, honor won the day. This is a, a blue blood family. Um, his dad is a huge Civil War hero at the very start. Of his military career the father was in the civil war as an underling in one of the most famous battles in navy history the one where the captain of the ship says damn the torpedoes full speed ahead and it makes his career and he goes on to become an admiral and this is his oldest son edward watson is the firstborn and he you know goes to the naval academy and he does everything right he marries well he gets posted on ship after ship after ship but he never really experiences a huge battle uh, a huge moment of heroism the way that his father did. And then along comes this opportunity to run a squadron of destroyers after World War I and uh, another opportunity to distinguish himself. And he starts making some decisions. And I argue in this piece that a lot of his decisions are informed by the same sort of daring uh, approach 
that his father would have done and that and that uh, Admiral Farragut, uh, who said, damn the torpedoes, would have done. That he is a product of a certain Navy culture that did not serve him well that night uh, on the coast of California, and that led to disaster. It's a complicated case that I, I make, but in their interactions afterward, you, you see the father and the son doing this very strange dance around one another. The, the father sends a couple of personal notes. The Watson sends some notes to some of his siblings saying, I hope I made father proud. And of course, in, in his public statements, Edward Watson keeps saying things like, um, I, uh, saying he had such steadfast devotion to the Navy, just as his father did. So there are all sorts of um, conversations happening between the father and the son in this very fraught moment that asks the question of, will he do the right thing now? Will he go down with the ship? Will he take the blame? But that's not all. Once he takes the blame, the most surprising thing happens. He, he goes from being a goat to a hero. The media starts to hail Watson as uh, a model of Navy manliness. He, he almost becomes a folk hero after the disaster because he takes the blame. And then that's not what happens. That's not all that happens. Then the next thing that happens is even more surprising because once the court of inquiry finishes its work and um, the court martials happen, the outcome then changes the way people perceive Watson all over again. And so this is the contemporary part of the story. This is the part where I think it's very much like today where the, the media perception or public perception of someone is wonderful one day, horrible the next, and then wonderful again. And it can you know, change on a dime. And yet Watson is still the same person all the way through. So I wanted to explore that as well. Yeah, it's kind of like if there's some sort of disaster going on and you go on Twitter and be like, hey, do, do we do we hate or like this guy today? I I, I don't know. What, what, what's let, Let's take the pulse of the, okay, yeah, oh, no, we hate him now. Okay, let's... Uh, I, I can't come up with a concrete example, but I feel like that you know that's pretty prescient. It happens almost on a daily basis. Like, okay, this 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 is this person's a villain now. Okay, now we now we villainize. <laughs> Absolutely, almost daily. The one that sticks in my head is Richard Jewell uh, from the oh, Atlanta yeah. bombing, yeah, at the Olympics, where he's he's this good Samaritan and this amazing hero one day, and then the next day suddenly everybody thinks that maybe he's some sort of. Um, saboteur with white knight syndrome who actually caused the problem so so that's a real 180 where suddenly he goes from hero to villain and then it turns out that that's completely false and so back he goes again and, and another undercurrent of of the story that's pretty fascinating too uh which i think is kind of prescient to today is there's a kind of an analog versus tech angle to this too with the the new ways of navigating the seas and how distrustful the the sailors were of uh of the compass readings of the oh shoot at rd something i'm blinking on it at the moment oh rdf radio direction yeah so there was some distrust of that when they lost sight and they want to say use dead reckoning their instincts are telling them they're farther than they actually are uh then they kind of retool the the reading of the of the RDF, and uh, it leads to disaster. So there's kind of this distrust of tech angle, which I think kind of echoes today as well. Absolutely. Uh, the, a lot of the people responsible for navigation 
don't trust the new technology. This is an intense period of transition for the Navy where they're going from decades of the captains and navigators of the ship having 100% authority in where they go and what they do to an era of radio where they can get orders instantaneously from other ships and from central headquarters. Uh, this, uh, this, is a, this undermines the authority of the captain. The, the, the whole damn the torpedoes ethos is being threatened by this. And there's even a, a culture that they named back then of following the leader. You're supposed to follow the ship at the front of the squadron. But if everybody can do their own navigation and if you can hear from headquarters instantaneously what to do, then what sort of authority does the captain do? What's the captain for anyway? And so here they are in a tricky situation on the California coast. The weather's terrible. The visibility is zero. Um, and this new gadget, this new radio direction finding technology that they are using to try to ascertain their position puts them in a place where they believe they can't possibly be. They don't believe it and they don't trust it. And they have decades of Navy culture with dead reckoning, which is the, it's the way of calculating your position, the low tech way, the lo-fi way by thinking about your speed and your position in the stars and your position based on landmarks. And they, they decide that it has to be wrong. And they make a decision, a fatal decision, based on, on that reasoning. So yes, distrust of technology winds up being a big piece of this. And to talk about deep dives and archival research, you could really go to town with RDF because essentially what it is, is it's the, it's the, it's the, the parent of, of radar. And, and it's you know, sort of the grandparent of the technology that was used in World War II with ships to be able to actually you know, detect other ships and you know, target them and find, find submarines underwater. So eventually the technology becomes indispensable. But at that particular moment, it is new and it is freaking people out. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a there's a moment in the story too where the one of the navigators had suggested that they maybe slow down and you know take take stock of what might be underneath them, and it, but it was going to slow them down, and they weren't going to get to San Diego as fast as they wanted, which kind of leads into this notion of of hubris too, of you know pushing ahead. It, it really echoes the. Well, it just predated the well, right, right around Titanic time. I, 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 before the Titanic, I believe, um, or after? No, after. Geez, I'm blanking on my timeline here. But it's kind of like, <laughs> let's go, let's go faster at the at the uh, expense of safety, and you, know, you see what happens. Okay, uh, clearly I'm confused on the timeline of, of matters. So let's dive in and fact check my bumbling and stumbling around the various dates. The Titanic went down in April 1912 and uh, Bob's story takes place uh, roughly September 8th, 1923. So 11 years later. Okay? God, I'm idiot. Idiot. Yeah, I think there's there's definite hubris here. Uh, there there is a problem they they have, which is that they feel as if they're in a race against time. They're trying to distinguish themselves by by going a certain speed down the coast, and anything they could do to really triple check their position, their navigation would involve slowing down. They would have to slow down to take depth soundings with a fathometer. Uh, they they would have to 
you know, slow down to do any any number of other things to try to figure out exactly where they were, and they just won't do it, probably because they think, well, you know, we've done this many times before. We know where we are. This is the California coast. We're not in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, how hard can this be? I think that they're lulled into a false sense of security by routine. And, and they are, at least Watson is, determined not to show uh, any, um, not to waver, because that's not what a captain does. At last, check. Let's see. I did a you know word check on on the story, and it was you know something around thirteen thousand words, give or take. Um, and that's that's a that's a that's a big chunk of words. And the trouble with long stories like this, and you have plenty of experience with this, is the ma- of a matter of pacing and making sure that it feel that we're gonna instead of in a digital age, I guess we keep scrolling versus uh, turning the page. So. So for you, when you're writing a story of this nature, you know, how attuned to you are uh, to, the, to the pacing and making sure that you're laying down, you know, things that keep people wanting more? I am concerned that people will stop reading if there are no emotional stakes. Mm-hmm. And so in this piece in particular, you can see I'm spending a lot of time up front sort of setting, setting up three different people. There's a Edward Watson, the commander, and then there's a captain on another ship, and then there's his mysterious civilian guest. And and I, it's almost like a, like a disaster movie where you introduce characters who are getting on board of the ship, and and then you know you know that we're going to come back to those characters all through and see what happens to them, at, at different moments of jeopardy, and so I felt like this would be a familiar structure that readers would get it. They'd be like, oh, I see, we're going to meet three people and then we're going to follow them through, but there is a certain amount of of worry that I'm taking forever to get to the crash, right? And so um, I, I am worried about rhythm. There's a lot of trial and error, and there's a lot of work with the wonderful editors at The Atavis who, who were talking about ways to make sure that people don't have to wait too long for these ships to actually leave dock and get into trouble. It, it can't all be prelude, and so you, you really have to um, fine-tune it all the way through. We were, we were making cuts to the first section even last week. Um, so it, it is not a... It's not not as for me it's never a situation where i just sit and write my little story and hand it to the editor and they say fine and run it i mean there's a lot of changes that happen a lot of changes and and so when you're sitting down to to write something of this nature it's a lot a lot of a lot of research a lot of you know probably either documents you print out or documents you have accessible to you via uh you know searchable on however you choose to save it, be it Dropbox or Google Drive, who, whatever. Uh, so when you're sitting down to, to write, and how are you ensure, uh, assuring that you have everything at your disposal so you can you know, maybe seamlessly try to get into the pocket and uh, you know have a good day at the ledger? It, it is a bit of a slog at first, but it, it, it starts chronologically. It starts with timelining. And, and by I don't mean just names and dates. I mean like a very ridiculously detailed timeline with lots of lots of notes lots of transcripts lots of uh, links to pdfs and 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 things like that to try to get as much detail in a chronological way as possible and then i kind of look at that enormously long unwieldy timeline document at some point and i start to break it up into chunks and i think well i can't tell the story of all seven ships that go down i'm going to have to focus on the first ship. And then if I end up focusing on the captain of the SS Young, which was the, um, the third ship in line, 
then I'll have to pull some scenes out about about that ship. And where does that happen in the chronology? And then you start you start to make decisions that then then by necessity lead to other decisions. And you, I, I tend to block it out that way by with um, I mean I've never used this phrase before, but I've only read about it. But with like story beats or with like acts in a play mm-hmm. or scenes. And again, that gets fine tuned and changed all the time. It, it just it just the 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 point of every step in a big project like this for me is to get you to the next step <laughs> it's, uh, uh, if it's good enough to get you to the next step then you're in good shape and then you just keep making it better and better and better to i think once uh, I, I had a lot more comfort once i figured out the first section um you see the first section kind of tells a lot of the story and gives you a lot of the background in a very very quick and breezy way to t- try to frame the whole thing and make it clear that something is going to happen and why and um and what the story is going to be about. And once I had that, uh, I felt like, well, great. Now I can. Now I have the freedom to go chronologically and bob and weave out of different storylines and find the right balance uh, in revision. Yeah, I think John McPhee he obsesses over you know the the lead or just the the opening section of any long piece, and he sees it something as a flashlight that kind of illuminates the rest of the path. I think Susan Orlean also. She obsesses over it. She can't proceed until she's got a decent lead there. And then it kind of spills out from there. Other people might be like, you know what? I can't figure out the lead. I got this island over here. I know I can write. I'm going to go write that one. And I'll, I'll get to the lead later. You know, for you, it strikes me as like you like to get the first thing set up. And then, it, you know, gravity takes over from there. Yeah, because you you start to, in the writing of the lead, you start to understand what exact, which exactly plates you're going to be spinning um, through the rest of the piece. You may not have figured that out until you write the lead. The, the process of writing the first section is the process of figuring out the most important elements of the rest of the piece. Maybe not exactly where they go or how they interact with one another, but what they're going to be and, how and, and what you're going to emphasize. It's about, it's about setting the stakes and setting the priorities. The people you mentioned, Susan Orlean and John McPhee, they have brilliant leads that that because you've read their leads, you suddenly can read the rest of their pieces with a lot less anxiety, a lot more pleasure, a lot more speed, because you know what you're looking for. They've told you what to look for. They've, they've set it, they've set it all up for you. You know, imagine like handing someone an ice cream cone, blindfolding someone and then handing them an ice cream cone and then not telling them what it is. (laughs) Like, this first that first bite of the ice cream cone is going to be a little weird for them. But if you say hand it to them and say, "I'm handing you an ice cream cone," then they're going to be excited. They're going to wonder what flavor ice cream cone is going to be. So that, that's that's the first uh, that's the first section. Uh, I I can't believe I just made an ice cream metaphor. <laughs> I work I do, but there it is. There it is. <laughs> yeah, and there's you know there's obviously there's the reporting, the research, the the writing and the rewriting and the rewriting and the rewriting uh, of a thing, um, uh, and that's its own bear. Uh, but how much time do you so- sometimes just sit there and and think about it and think things through? I had an opportunity last fall where I had a couple days away from everything. And um, and that helped me with the lead. That helped. I was able to actually sort of sit and really think nonstop for a day or two to try to really crack it. And then after that, I, I can work in stages. I don't have to sit and like go off to a eight week writers retreat or anything like that. 
but but yeah, to 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 sort of crack the the general notion of how the story will run, that's not something that I can do in a breezy way in between lunch and coffee and uh, getting on the phone. Um, it, it, I need a, a certain amount of time to really get in there. And then with with this with this particular article, because it's historical, it's not just all the primary documents that I found at the archives. There were four or five different books written about this disaster. Only one of them was written by, by someone who was a professional writer. And that one had, even that one had sort of dialogue and, 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 um, and other things that weren't exactly um, you know, accurate. Uh, the rest of them were all more amateurish efforts to try to recreate different perspectives on the disaster. But in their ways, each of these books was valuable. So I had to spend a lot of time going carefully through all of those books. And uh, there are a lot of, of course, papers and articles written about this disaster over the years, sort of plundering them all, trying to um, see what's useful or what isn't useful. And then there are the conspiracy theories. Um, I suddenly had an appreciation for people who had to write about I don't know, the Kennedy assassination or something, mm-hmm. because the, there are anonymous people online who are talking about all sorts of things they're certain happened to cause this disaster that, in fact, there is no proof for. But you sort of have to go through all of that and read all of that just to see if there's any any meat on the bone there that you can use and and try to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, there's the whole Bob Gottlieb thing of like turning every page and but it's like at some point you like you, you need to stop turning pages. It's like otherwise you're never gonna finish. <laughs> I just saw it. I just saw it the other night. My daughter's in college and she's reading the Power Power Broker, and so the two of us decided to watch it together. Um, Kara's interesting, right? Because he's so maximalist. He really he doesn't just want to turn every page. He also you know would would rather write more than less in all, about almost any given subject. So the idea of making a cut is really tough for him. And so uh, the question for him about what priorities to make with, with his work, he doesn't have to make those choices quite often because everything is important. He's decided everything is important. And that's some, something somebody says about him in the documentary. They say, like, to him, a semicolon is as important as the entire first chapter. And so you, you, you feel that when you're reading his work, you're feeling that he, he just invests every single moment with meaning. And it's, it's amazing. It's one of a kind. It's, it, it, it is, um, it is hard to imitate because, you know, just as it's sometimes hard to, it would be hard to imitate John McPhee, um, because of the, the length they have and the, you know, the, the mandate they have is different from what, you know, quite often we have these days. When I was talking to uh, Pete Croato, who uh, wrote the book uh, From Hang Time to Prime Time, Prime Time about the NBA, he's a freelance writer, and, and, and we were talking about reporting and interviewing and uh, sometimes the valorization of over-reporting, um, which is brought up by Wu Dan Yan, who came on the show um, a, a few weeks ago. And we were talking about, like, say, it's great if you can talk to just you know, hundreds of people for something, but sometimes you you don't have enough time. Uh, and then he brought up that uh, there was a Washington sport, a Washington Post uh, sports writer, you know, this probably in, probably in the eighties, who was you know, just really he seemed to get the great, you know, the greatest quotes, and but he didn't interview very long. You know, he just it was very efficient, and this person turned out to be David Remnick. And 
<laughs> and, and so I wonder, I wonder for you over over the year how how maybe you have gotten maybe more efficient with your interviewing, just maybe to get the most out of an interview, the greatest detail, without also, you know, I I, I hesitate to use wasting time, but sometimes when you're on a tight deadline, it's like if you're not getting the most efficient use out of your time with somebody, if you have an hour or less, you could be wasting time. So yeah, for you, have you? found a a good way of streamlining interviewing so you are getting the getting the gold without you know spending five hours with somebody i think remnick's an excellent example here because that here's a quite obviously super high iq individual who who can sort of see around corners as he's talking and sort of has he, he kind of has the story half in mind it seems as he's working on whatever he's working on he, as both as a an amazing editor and an amazing writer he kind of knows the widget that he's making as he's making it. And also, you know, he was not always writing for the New Yorker. He was, uh, you know, a you know, bureau chief for a newspaper. So he knows about deadlines. He knows about, he knows about fast turnaround. He knows about seeing the hole that he has to fill in two hours and then filling it in one hour, 59 minutes. So he has a set of muscles. In my career, I've had the privilege of, of working at New York Magazine for, um, you know, for 17 years, and that is not the same, but it is it is a place with deadlines. It is a place where you have a hole to fill, and it is a place where you kind of understand that you have to you have to get this done. You have to finish, um, and not be quite so precious about the work you're doing. And so it does behoove you at a place like that to have a set of muscles to to understand when you're interviewing someone. We are not just chit chatting. You know, I am trying to get understand something in a, an efficient amount of time, and so my questions better be pretty on point. I had a very interesting early experience at New York Magazine, where a couple cubbies away from me was a um, a writer who was writing a story about something that was happening at the the Hamptons party, and she was on the phone with them, and she was really insistent, asking the most specific details she could, physical details, like what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, like what, what sort of flowers were in the flower arrangements, what color were the tablecloths, were the napkins paper napkins or cloth napkins, what music was playing, how many people were in the band, like really, really um, pointed questions. And she was not asking them like she was the person's pal. She was asking them like, I need this, let's get, let's get down to business. And my takeaway from this was, but sometimes an interview is is a very touchy feely and very emotional thing. But but other times it is as different from a regular conversation between pals as as it could possibly be. Um, and that it's okay. It's okay sometimes for the experience to be synthetic. Um, you're not that. You know, it's a stupid thing to say, but you're not necessarily there to make friends. You're there to have a meaningful interaction that produces the best story possible. And so you don't want to be a jerk. But you also don't have to take every single source out to lunch. You also don't have to, you know, move to their hometown and get to know everything about them the way that Harrow did with Lyndon Johnson. Um, if you were writing five books about the person, then yeah, move to their hometown. But if you're on deadline, you have a job to do. You know, you're going to be interviewing someone. Uh, there, there's an interesting. Well, there, there's a calculus between how much prep you do ahead of time which can maybe 
paint you into a corner and maybe maybe you don't listen as well. That's one argument. Uh, And then the other way is like, this is more of a conversation. I'm going to see where it goes and interview based on the information that comes out. Um, so where 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 are you on the, the continuum of doing a lot of prep versus, let's say, no prep, depending on who you're talking to? Um, quite often the subjects I'm writing about are not, um, are not famous people who've been written about before or been interviewed before. So it's different for in, in my instance. But like if you have if you have 20 minutes with a movie star at a junket where you're having lunch and they're at a hotel room and you, you, you can get 20 minutes in the room to sit across from them as they're eating a salad and you have to ask them questions, you really better prepare yeah. and you better have. Uh, otherwise, you're just sitting there trying to um, talk about the experience of seeing them in the hotel room, which is you know a crapshoot because that can be very boring. Yeah. Um, so you really better have good questions and really have, it, have read up everything. There's a wonderful article that my old colleague and and friend Steve Roderick just wrote about Michael Mann on the cover of Variety and he talked about this he talked about how you know there's a lot of pressure not to not to be, look like an idiot in front of Michael Mann because he's a pretty demanding person so he took eight days and watched all his movies and read his book and did everything he possibly could to prepare for it but for me let's say there was a story I did uh, more than 10 years ago where I was trying to get an interview with this person who is in a certain in a certain amount of jeopardy for months and months and months and finally she said okay meet me at my lawyer's office in atlanta and you have two hours so i get on the plane and i fly to atlanta and i get the rental car and i drive across town and i sit down with her and i've got two hours in a in a conference room with the with the lawyer sitting there half paying attention and it's and it's my job to sort of get the woman's life story and help understand her better and so what I said to her was, um, and other interviews viewers do this too, I've learned later. I said, let's, let's, make a, let, let's play a game with a rule. And the rule is we won't jump around in time. And we'll start this conversation with the day you were born. And I promise to move quickly through the boring parts and get to the parts that are important for us to talk about. But if at any point you ever say to me, I didn't know it then, but I learned later or something like that, I'll... I'll make the little timeout sign and be like, no, 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 let's stay in time, stay in time so that I learn things as you start to learn them. Mm. And that, that winds up being narrative, right? It's a certain type of narrative. But two amazing things happened over those two hours. The first is that she got super comfortable and, and started to have a lot more confidence that I was going to be able to write a story that was going to be true. Um, because she felt like I was making an honest effort to really understand her. This, this was less of an inquisition and more of me encouraging her to tell her story. And then secondly, I started asking way, way better questions because once I had a feel for the chronology, I, I was able to ask things I never would have asked before. I'm making this up, but it would be something like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you, do you mean to tell me that you learned you were pregnant two weeks before you graduated high school? You know, that I nobody I didn't know this. You, I, I thought that you, you know, had the baby afterward, but that you had learned. I, I didn't understand the timing of that. And then I drill down into it and I say, okay, so you learn you're pregnant and you have to tell your mother about it. What was that like? You know, and and suddenly the questions get more important and more interesting. And it was exhilarating. And and she was smiling too. She was like, oh, good, you're going to ask good questions, not bad questions. And it it helped a lot. And I feel as if the finished product of that story does not feel like it was just two hours of 
a conversation, that it was um, something a little deeper than that. When it comes to the writing, you know, I, I highlighted one sentence uh, of uh, of your Atavis piece that I just, uh, it really just stuck out to me. It's just very evocative, but also alliterative in a sense. And it, it's, um, the sea was thi- a thick stew with a five-inch layer of congealing slick on the surface, making swimming near impossible. And then, then there's a page break. And I, I, I love the the alliteration in that sentence, it feels slippery itself. And, uh, and just for you, is is that something that you're thinking about on a sentence level or does it just riff out of you? I think that all comes later. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I think a lot of other writers are, are way better at the sentence level than I am. But so I end up polishing and try to trying to make uh, a moment pop a little better by doing something a little more evocative. That, that particular sentence arose out of a real need because there was a very particular situation happening on the shore. It wasn't just that it was dark and the, the boats had no electricity and that they were sinking. And it wasn't just that the waves were crashing. And it wasn't just that there were sharp rocks below the surface because it was a rocky shoreline. And it wasn't just that there was a tall cliff along the shore so people couldn't really get to them and help them right away. It wasn't that at all. It was that their oil tanks had been punctured and they were gushing out oil. And so if they went into the water, they might not be able to swim. And so I had to sort of very, very quickly point to what the experience would like to be, to be splashing around in the water, in the dark, in the waves at night, where the water is not just ocean water and there aren't just boulders beneath you, but there's like five inches of oil covering over the top of the, the surface. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing sentence. I just it's and it's just fun to read out loud too. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> well, well, uh, I, I want to be mindful of your time, and as I uh, bring these podcasts down for a landing, I always love asking the guests for a recommendation of some kind, and just anything you can be excited about it, it, that you want to share with the listeners. So uh, I'd extend that to you. Uh, what what would you recommend for the listeners out there? Um, the thing I'm I'm recommending to everyone right now is the September cover story of the Atlantic by Jennifer Senior. It's called The Ones We Sent Away. And it's, uh, she's a, a, a great friend of mine and a co- an old colleague, but also um, an amazing reporter. But in this case, she turns the lens on herself and on her own family, on her mother and on her aunt, who uh, was a person who she only recently had learned existed because she had been institutionalized for years. It's an amazing narrative. Uh, and but it's also an amazing family story and an amazing memoir and an amazing portrait of her mother as well, and um, and the caregivers who who took care of her aunt over the years, um, and there's even a little expose in the middle of the of Willowbrook of the of the you know institution that had was supposed to care for her aunt for many years that turned out to be so awful. So it's it's my favorite kind of long story, which is that it's not just one thing; it's four or five or even six different things. All right. Well, fantastic. That's great. I've heard great things about that story, so I'm definitely going to bookmark it and re- read that later. So uh, I just got to say, th- thank you so much for coming on the show, talking talking some shop here about this incredible Atavis piece. And uh, yeah, this was wonderful. So thank you for making the time. Um, thank you, Brendan. It was great talking to you. Oh, alas, we have come to the end. Thanks to Bob and Jonah. Always fun. To get your Atavist on magazine.atavist.com to subscribe. It's like 25 bucks a year. 
when you and you get access to all the archives and no i don't get any kickbacksies it's uh it's uh, I think twenty five bucks well spent. I know it's like everyone is telling you to subscribe to something. There's probably like five hundred Substacks you're subscribed to, and every single one is like upgrade to paid. And you're like, what? Well, I I got this subscription here and this one, and I'm a I'm a I'm in the Patreon crew at CNF Pod, and like, where does it end? But it's twenty five bucks well spent. There's been a lot of hullabaloo about AI. It's already proving disruptive, and it will be especially so for writers. It's only going to get more so. The Columbus Dispatch, I believe, a fucking Gannett property. So I know a job's a job, and you need a job. I work for one, and it's awful. It is a terrible place to work. Uh, they, quote-unquote, covered a high school game, and the byline was AI. Like, that's depressing. I, a lot of fairly basic writing will be continually outsourced to robots, uh, we can cry and our beers are bad at the way wedding photographers cried about people taking photos themselves or travel agents cried when Kayak and Expedia came along or hotel companies when Airbnb arrived. And by the way, kind of like fuck Airbnb as well. Way expensive and I'm tired of them. Yeah. Firing shots. This is the time to double down on what makes you weird. And I don't necessarily mean like Gonzo or Animal from the Muppets or Pee Wee Herman, R.I.P. But if AI will be the average voice, the get-it-done voice, then you must run as fast as you can in the opposite direction with a fearlessness paralleled only by Tom Cruise hurtling himself off a cliff. Whatever writing jives with you, you need to start turning your shit up to 11. AI is at like an 8 or a 9. You need to make sure that only one person and no rob robots can do you. you know, that can be style, but that can also be generosity, humanness. Be remarkable and fearless. It's helping with my writing of this godforsaken biography that, I've, uh, that I'm writing. Some of you know I'm working on. Some of you probably don't know, but hey, now you do. As I'm writing a sentence, I'm asking myself these days, like, could AI write this? If so, I find a way to put my seasoning on the sentence, my, my pacing, uh, word choice, my tuning. This isn't to say writing obnoxiously or disrespectfully of the subject, but there's a reason why some of us are drawn to, let's just use movies, say the films of Wes Anderson or David Fincher, Greta Gerwig, Christopher Nolan, Amy Poehler, Michelle McLaren, Vince Gilligan, or Spike Lee. There's non-replicable point of views through which any great artist metabolizes their subject. Of course, I'm leaving off billions of others. Uh, Ryan Coogler, Ava DuVernay, you name it. I'm not familiar with AI. But I, I, I don't study it. I don't obsess over it. I'm neither excited by it or nor do I fear it yet. But it's here to stay. The way the internet is, the way streaming is, and we can cling to the old power structures, but it's going to be the next big disruptor. You know, I never thought that anything would come along that might be more disruptive than the internet, but uh, AI is probably that thing. And who knows what's going to happen afterwards. I'll be dead by then. So think of it in terms of how it can push you into greater discomfort to be the writer you were at your core when you were 15 years old and nobody told you it had to sound like this to be literary. I fell into that trap in the MFA program. Like, this 
is how you sound artful and not just uh, writing a gamer for the newspaper. So in any case, there there was a part of you when you were a preteen, a teen, even younger than that, when you liked to write and you were just like, you had no predispositions. You just did what felt good. You imitated the thing that made you the most happy and you had fun with it. So yes, if I can't tell whether you or AI wrote it, we have a problem. So stay wild, see an efforts. And if you can't do, interview. See ya.